This morning we're going to be looking at a topic that's a little bit of a heavy and difficult topic. Not, not heavy in terms of dense and hard to understand. Uh, in fact, I think it's, it's the, the, the ideas that we're going to be looking at and the basic Bible teaching we're going to be looking at are, are not complex, deep theology, but it's heavy because it's a, it's a difficult topic that all of us, I believe, can relate to at multiple times in our lives. In fact, for some folks, it's, it's, a, it, it's frequent. And really, so what we're going to be looking at today is suffering, sorrow, and, and our, what we're really going to be looking at is how God uses suffering to bring blessing and benefit and goodness into our lives. And that's a hard, difficult concept for many people to understand. So we're going to be looking at, at some several passages of Scripture that I believe are clear enough to understand, but yet are, are, are a little bit difficult to, to turn into a reality into our life. Now, Scripture has many, many passages that deal with suffering, sorrow, and all that goes into that. And, and the questions that we have to work our way through. Because so frequently, when there is a trial in our lives, we are often asking ourselves, why? Why is this necessary? Why do I have to endure this? Why should anyone have to endure this? Why did God let it happen? Why did God's providence, did He not make it in such a way so that it wouldn't have happened? Now, the answers to those questions are not going to be as satisfactory as what you might prefer. But there are at least some answers to those questions. And so let's explore this by opening up to your Bible to 1 Peter chapter number 2 as a beginning point. Now, the book of 1 Peter, written in the first century to early Christians, was written at a time when the early church was experiencing a lot of difficulty. Those early decades for the Christian church, and really off and on sporadically for nearly 300 years, the early church had a lot of persecutors. Amen. There were a lot of people giving them trouble and grief. And then, of course, there were the natural troubles of life on top of that. And there was a certain amount of, uh, occasionally there was um, tension within a given church body, within a congregation, or between two believers that had to be resolved. Or there was just trouble. The church at Corinth, for example, had many tr problems that they had to work their way through. They were internal in themselves. And then there was just life. Life was just difficult. The Roman government was unsympathetic to the Christians that they ran across. And as Christians slowly became more and more numerous, the pressure to eradicate this strange sect, the pressure became greater and greater. And so Peter speaks quite a bit about suffering and trouble and how we ought to be responding to it. So we're going to read a few passages out of 1 Peter. I hope you have your Bibles handy now and you've opened up to chapter 2. We're going to read several verses from 1 Peter chapter 2. Then we're going to read several verses from 1 Peter chapter 3. And then we're going to read several verses from 1 Peter chapter 4, and this will be a springboard 
into our conversation about suffering and ultimately how God can use suffering, trouble, persecution to bring benefit to us, even though we may not care for it at all. So with those thoughts in mind, I would ask you in in honor of, of the Word of God to be standing for a few moments. We're going to start in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, and we'll read down to verse 23. So I hope everyone who is capable of standing and reading would choose to do that. I encourage you to stand and read with us now. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to read verses 19 through 23 together. Here we go. For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully, For what glory is it, if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye will, and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Thank you. Please do not sit down yet. If you'll turn over a page or so to 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to read together verses 14 through 17. 1 Peter 3, 14 through 17. Together, let us read. But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Finally, one last passage, chapter 4. If you'll turn to chapter 4 of 1 Peter, we'll read verses 12 through 16 together. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 16, shall we read? Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory God on this behalf. Thank you. You may be seated. We're going to start with the abstract. And I'm going to give you an answer that, as I I would say, is theological in nature (laughs) to answer the difficult question, why does pain, suffering, and sorrow exist? It is a 
I guess, a philosophical, theological question that a lot of people have pondered over. Uh, Christians, atheists, lots of philosophers have worked on this one. Now you, as a believer in Christ, and as a person who looks to the Bible as your touchstone of truth, which is, of course, a critical point in your thinking, is the Bible your touchstone of truth? Is it a source of truth, or is it the source of truth? So first you have to answer that question to yourself. Then, of course, you have a lot of work to do to sort the Bible out correctly. It is a pretty large book, covers a lot of topics, many different writers, and so it has to be, we have to divide the word of truth properly, wisely, not out of context or glibly grabbing this or that to make a point, but put, the all, put it all together when you're dealing with a difficult topic like this one. So as Christians, as believers that the word of God is our touchstone of truth, why does pain, suffering, and sorrow exist? All right, I'm going to give you my best shot at this. Not every theologian would agree with everything I'm about to tell you in the next couple of minutes, but I'll give you my best shot, and I think I can defend it reasonably well. In the beginning, when God made a perfect world, God gave to Adam, to Eve, an enormous gift, a tremendous gift. The gift that causes Adam and Eve to be thoughtful and sentient creatures different than another living organism such as a clam or a palm tree. God gave them this gift of sentient thought, of thinking and choosing. He gave them the gift of free will. Now, he encouraged them to use that gift wisely and to choose righteousness. He said, choose righteousness. Do not choose this. Do choose this. You have a choice. You have this great gift of free will. Now, to some degree, that choice is still available. Now, if we go through the first several chapters of Genesis and we analyze all the verses that talk about the fall of Adam and Eve, we will, at least in my view, discover that Adam and Eve lost one aspect of that free will. And the aspect of that free will that they lost was the, the free will, the ability to choose eternal life. Because they chose wrongly, they were cast out of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword was placed to prevent them from re-entering and going back to the tree of life. That choice of the tree of life, eternal life, was no longer theirs to choose. Now, eternal life would be in God's hands. And in God's sovereign will, He elects those to eternal life, those who He chooses, and others are overlooked. Which is a whole other question as to the justice and wisdom of God and why He would do that. But we don't have time for that. That's a rabbit trail. Back to Adam and Eve, and back to you and I. So we have a glass ceiling. We cannot choose eternal life on our own, and we are subject to the election and providence of God. But we do retain a great deal 
of choice and free will. We can still choose righteousness, and we can still avoid sin, iniquity, and all that which is wicked. But we do live in a world that is much more difficult in that respect. Now the world has enormous temptations that in the Garden of Eden weren't present. Now we have a fallen nature. Our own nature is corrupt in the internal parts of us. And it tugs at us constantly, trying to drag us in the wrong direction. Yet we still have the ability to reach out and grasp and try with earnest hearts to choose that which is right and good and choose to avoid that which is wrong and evil as God has declared and as God has made clear what is good and what is evil. The Word of God tells us what is right and what is wrong. Now, without that element of free will, that great gift, we wouldn't have any of the things we value the most. We wouldn't have love. True love is freely given. We wouldn't have friendship. Friendship is freely given. We wouldn't have respect. Respect is given. It's a choice that someone makes to, to give their respect to another. All the things that we value are dependent on the free will we still retain. Regarding our salvation, though, it is the election of God in His providence and His discretion that determines our eternal destiny. But down here on this world, in this earth, in this life, as we make our way day by day and week by week through the trials of life and the problems that arise, we still have choice and we still must live with the choices we make in this world, here and now. And we have to work our way through it wondering, is there something bigger and greater and and a value that comes out of all of this struggle and travail in this really screwed up world. For those who think about it and know a little bit about historical events, there have been some unbelievably horrible stories in human history that have been inflicted one upon another. And on a smaller scale, there are innumerable tragedies that enter our lives, some of which, they just come, disease, and so forth. Others just bubble up, they're somebody's fault, but we're pretty sure it's not mine. But here I am, suffering because someone else has screwed up. Or, maybe if we look deeply, we'll acknowledge some of my suffering is because I chose poorly. And I'm now working my way through the natural consequences of my poor choice. So it comes from a variety of directions. And sometimes we aren't sure how to sort it all out. Yet we still struggle. We still struggle with the why of all of it. And the why of all of it is, is because God gave us the gift of choice. And without it, 
you'd be a walnut tree. <laughs> you would be a clamshell. You would operate purely by instinct, without thought, without reason, without love, without respect. So maybe on a cartoon of SpongeBob, a sea cucumber might fall in love with a sea anemone. But they don't, really, because they're not really sentient creatures that have the choice. And they're just not wired that way, but you are. And that's, while it opens the door to much sorrow, it's the same thing. That door is still also the door that opens up to the joy and the love and the friendship and the respect and all the things that make a life worth living. And that's God's gift. We haven't used it all that well sometimes, have we? Well, now, just a couple of quick passages on this before I shift gears. We could turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30, and I'll read for you verses 19 and 20 about this simple idea that we still have the choice to choose righteousness or to choose iniquity. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that thou and thy seed may live, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God, and thou mayest obey his voice, and thou mayest cleave unto him, for he is thy life and the length of thy days, and that thou mayest dwell in the land which the Lord gave unto thy fathers. Well, there's other aspects of this abstract theological conversation that we're having, but I'd like to shift gears and spend most of our time talking about the everyday sort of trials. And I want to really focus and give you a few reasons for you to reflect on this morning. Now, these reasons may not be enough for you to walk out of here and say, Boy, I got it all, my understanding's now been enlarged, and now I feel so much better. I don't know if you'll feel a lot better, but you might feel worth it might be worthwhile for you to reflect deeply on these things and they might help you some. And I trust and pray they will be of value. So let's shift gears and I'm going to give you a number of reasons from the Bible how God uses suffering and sorrow for your benefit. And indeed, without suffering and sorrow, we would miss out on many many good and noble things. We're going to start in Ecclesiastes. And I'm going to give you a couple of passages out of Ecclesiastes. Now, if you've ever read much in this book, you'll know that it's a, it comes across pretty gloomy. But it's a valuable book, especially for those who have some age on them and begin to see the wisdom that's found in the book of Ecclesiastes. So it turns out that we all know that wisdom is something that is highly desirable. And Proverbs tells us that we should seek to obtain wisdom. Wisdom, above all things, it tells us, we ought to seek and find and strive to gain. But it turns out 
that perhaps the only way to gain real wisdom is through suffering. So Ecclesiastes chapter number 1 and verse 18 reads like this. In much wisdom is much grief. And he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. Now that verse is not saying avoid getting any smarter so you can avoid sorrow. And that verse is not saying don't get any wisdom, that way you can avoid all grief. What the passage is really telling us is that it, that it is the nature of life. That it is through grief that we develop wisdom, and it is through sorrow that we obtain true knowledge. Now that's a pretty heavy thought, and that's kind of a depressing thought to say to yourself, if I want to increase my understanding of the world and of human nature and, and become a person of knowledge and wisdom, I've got to go through a lot of grief and sorrow. Well, regretfully, there is much truth in what I've just said. But let's go to another passage in Ecclesiastes, chapter number 7. There are some words in Ecclesiastes in chapter 7 that are hard for a person to, to wrap their mind around and to, to get it into their head, <laughs> especially for people who are young. But let's look at verse number 2. We could spend a lot of time in, in this, these verses here, but Let's just look at verse 2, Ecclesiastes 7. It says, It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. What? It's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting? What in the world is he saying? What's a house of mourning? Well, let me give you my paraphrased interpretation, my paraphrased version, and I, will, I recognize I'm taking a lot of liberty here. But it could be said in verse 2, it's better to go to a funeral than to go to a wedding. Because the end of all men is at a funeral. And you need to be thinking about your end. That's better. Well, that's a pretty gloomy thought. I think I've been to two funerals the past year. Probably a lot of you have been to one or two in the past year. You'll go to one or two this year. It's a time for real reflection. It's a time that actually gives you an opportunity to think on your life because it tells us that is the end of all men. Now, I'll go to a funeral this year, I suppose. I hope it's not my own. But we need to be thinking about these things. Ecclesiastes 7 goes on with a few other hard words. Hard to understand. Hard to process. Verse 3 says, Sorrow is better than laughter. For by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. Amen. Sorrow makes your heart better, not laughter. Sorrow. Oh, wow. You might be thinking, I don't know if I want a better heart. 
Verse 4, the theme is continued. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The funeral home. (laughs) But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Mirth as in silliness, giddiness, laughter that really doesn't have any point to it. Well, my my purpose this morning isn't to depress you. (laughs) My purpose this morning is to use Scripture to stimulate your thinking a little bit and to point out the first benefit if you're walking through a moment of sorrow or a moment of suffering. You, if you're in a moment of suffering and sorrow, can look forward to the blessing of wisdom. There will wisdom will come your way because of what you're experiencing now or at another time that's very difficult for you. Wisdom. Now, we read some passages in 1 Peter chapter 2 and 1 Peter chapter 3 and 1 Peter chapter 4. And if you'd like to flip back to those passages that we just read, I'll give you the second reason that suffering is beneficial. As believers in Christ, we take it as axiomatic that we are supposed to try to become more Christ-like. We should seek to be more like Jesus, more like Christ. (sighs) Well, as it turns out, 1 Peter tells us repeatedly that suffering unjustly, unfairly, is one of the best ways to become like Christ. And because God wants us to be more like Christ, He permits unjust suffering to enter your life. And we've already read this. But let's look at 1 Peter 2.19. Perhaps you didn't quite grasp 1 Peter 2.19 when we read it. Peter says, This is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully... What? Well, wait a minute, what's that mean? What, what was he saying there? Peter is saying, it's, it's appropriate for you to give thanks to God when you suffer wrongfully. You should be thankful. Why? Why? It is because that will make us more like Christ, who also suffered wrongfully. And we should recognize that we ought to be more like Him. Verse 20 sort of elaborates on that. And he compares two men. One one person who is being punished for something they did wrong... And another one's also being punished when he did nothing wrong. And he says to the one who's being punished when he did nothing wrong, if you take it patiently, God is okay with it. He's okay with allowing injustice in your life 
because he sees a greater good that is accomplished therein, in the long run, that brings great benefit to your inner person, to your inner soul. This is acceptable because it makes us, as he elaborates in 21 and 22, more Christ-like. Now this is again found, as we've already read, in verse chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. He says, if the will of God, for, let's just take verse 17 in 1 Peter 3. Cast your eye upon 1 Peter 3, 17. It says, it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Sometimes God lets us suffer for doing things that are good. The old phrase, no good deed goes unpunished, seems to have some truth to it. <laughs> it doesn't mean we should stop doing good deeds. That's hard because it seems like the, the nature of life creates an incentive to, to quit trying to be a, a good neighbor and a good friend or, or a, a quality person. But that's, that's short-sighted. In the larger picture, God is improving us in these ways. So it, a second reason that suffering and sorrow can enter your life and be a benefit is because it's, it's how we become more Christ-like. It's how we become like Jesus. And if your faith is strong enough and your love for God is deep enough that you really mean it when you say, I want to be like Christ if I can, then th this will be a part of your life from time to time. Now there's another reason. A fiery trial is mentioned in 1 Peter 4. Verse 12 reads like this. We, we looked at it already. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened. It's not a strange thing for a fiery trial to enter your life, Peter tells us. Why are you surprised? You should expect this sort of thing from time to time. Well, what is a fiery trial? Well, I'm not sure I could elaborate perfectly, but I would throw out this thought. Fire is, in Scripture is essentially an agent of destruction. Fire is, a, is, is, is the, in, a, in, in scriptural context, it is maybe the ultimate symbol of destruction. So a fiery trial is a trial that you think will destroy you or ruin your life. That is a fiery trial. A trial that you're pretty sure you're going to come out in okay in the end. A little tough now, but I'll muddle through and I'll be all right. I think I'll be just fine. That's not a fiery trial. A fiery trial is one where you say, I think this is going to ruin the rest of my life. I will never, ever be able to be happy again. Now, don't be surprised if a few fiery trials come into your life, Peter tells us. Now, there are a lot of illustrations of this in Scripture. And it turns out God works with people individually, and He works with people collectively. 
Sometimes God paints us into a corner. He allows circumstances in your life to be contrived in such a way that you're stuck with what appears to be no good way out that's going to avoid a lot of pain. You might still see, if you could be objective enough, be able to see, well, one choice is right and one's wrong, but they both seem to be bringing intense and horrible suffering. If I do the right thing, I'm going to get, I'm going to, it's going to really hurt me. If I do the wrong thing, well, that might hurt me too, but so you're, you're looking for a way out, and you can't find it. It doesn't mean that God won't find one for you. Let me give you a quick illustration of the history of Israel. They were facing a fiery trial one time. They had left the land of Egypt. Moses had guided them through the wilderness. They'd received the Ten Commandments. And they were getting ready to enter the land of Canaan. And then they discovered there were giants there. God told them, go into the land of Canaan and occupy it. When they saw the giants, they all freaked out. At least almost all of them. And they saw it as certain destruction. Certain destruction. Certain failure to try to enter the land of Canaan with all those giants there. And so some of them said, let's go back to Egypt. At least we were alive there. We'll go back to our slave pits. But at least we were able to be alive. Well, they didn't go back to Egypt, did they? And they didn't enter the land of Canaan either, did they? Instead, God opened up another window, and He sent them out in the desert for 40 years. He said, you're not ready for this, but in my mercy, I'm not going to send you back to the slave pit where you came from. I'm sending you out in the desert for 40 years of suffering, and trial and hardship. And I'm going to toughen this group of people up. And then you'll be ready to enter the land of Canaan and take on the giants. That's a fiery trial. But God will open a window. God will open an alternative that you don't see if you don't hit the eject button and do that which is wrong. There's many other things many other reasons why suffering and sorrow are good. It turns out that suffering and pain is one of the best ways to remove our attention from temporal values, temporal concerns, to eternal values. Again, First Peter has things to say on this. Now, we didn't look at this passage yet. You might cast your eye for a moment on First Peter chapter 4. I'm going to read for you verse 1 and 2. It says, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. He no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. So God will allow the suffering in our life to help us refocus from the lusts of the flesh that have captured our attention, to shift our mind to the will of God and eternal values rather than being caught up in all of the things that can so easily capture our attention that are 
not necessarily evil in and of themselves, but they maybe just be giant distractions, enormous distractions that catch us up so that we're not, we no longer have the time or the interest in the will of God. We're just caught up in all these other affections that the world has. And it draws us in further, deeper and deeper away from our affection for Christ and the things of God. Yet another reason. Turns out that hardship is the only way it's going to really give us the credibility and the experience needed to rule with Christ. Now, all of us say to ourselves, I look forward to our, my eternal reward. And part of that re- eternal reward is being able to rule and reign with Christ in some capacity and have something good happen in that respect. 1 Timothy, no, excuse me, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. Hmm. Well, if you don't get that, let's keep reading. Verse 12. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we suffer, we shall reign with him. If we have any heart's desire to rule and reign with Christ, one day in the kingdom of God, in a glorified body, like Christ, we're going to have to suffer now, like Christ did. Now it could be, there's another important reason. Turns out that tribulation and unjust suffering might actually turn out to be for our future protection and safety. Our future protection and safety might be what God has in mind when He allows suffering that we don't deserve. Now there's a great example. Many of you will recall this story. It's a beautiful verse in Genesis 50. So I'm going to read for you just a little bit out of Genesis 50. Now this is the story of Joseph. Now everybody remembers the story of Joseph, right? His brothers decided to sell him as a slave into Egypt. In fact, a few of them wanted to kill him. Well, he didn't get killed. He escaped that. But he was taken as a slave to Egypt. And when he got to Egypt, he started working his way up as a slave. And just when it looked like things were going pretty good... Oh, he got in trouble with his master and his master's wife, Potiphar. And um, he got transferred from his slave plantation, where life wasn't too bad because he was a house slave. And he's thrown to the dungeon. And now he's in the dungeon. And he stays there quite some time. I suppose if you just use your imagination about what a dungeon would be like in Egypt 3,000 years ago, you could probably imagine it was a pretty tough, pretty, pretty pit poor place to be. Amen. No pun intended. But we all know the story. <laughs> After more time goes by, God providentially elevates him out of the dungeon all the way to Pharaoh's court. And he becomes Pharaoh's chief advisor. Powerful, 
man, wealthy man, comfortable life now. Things have changed dramatically. But it took years for that to happen. Now, Joseph, years later, when he reconciles with his brothers, you may remember in Genesis 50, Joseph and his brothers reach a point when their father Jacob dies that it's time to sort of settle the accounts one with another. And the brothers are fearful now that their father Jacob is alive. Joseph, this powerful man who has allowed his brothers and their families to come to Egypt to survive the terrible famine. They th- his brothers are fearful now that Joseph is going to take this natural opportunity to get his revenge for the evil they r- put upon him. And Joseph's attitude is just unbelievably wonderful. Just marvelous. If we break into Genesis 50, verse 15, here's what his brothers were saying and thinking. They said, when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us and will certainly requite us all the evil which we did to him. He's going to get revenge on us now. That's what they thought. Probably some of them were thinking that's perfectly to be expected. Maybe even in their hearts, a few of them would say, that's probably what I would do <laughs> if I was him. But they're hoping he won't. Well, obviously they're hoping he won't. He's a powerful man in Egypt. So they go on down and they send a messenger and they ask for forgiveness. And they bow low before him. And here's what... Joseph says in verse 19 of chapter 50. Joseph said to them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. God was behind all of this. God was using your evil intent to accomplish a greater good in my life and in the lives of everybody. And then he says, fear not. I'll protect you, I'll nourish you and your children. Well, it's an important thought that tribulation, suffering, unjust trials, problems that you are pretty sure you don't deserve (laughs) might turn out might turn out to be for your future protection and safety. And we have to trust our Father in heaven that He knows what's going on. There's an ironic feature of suffering and trial that has been observed by those who have studied church history. It's really alluded to in a couple of places in Scripture, Ecclesiastes and elsewhere. But we won't, I won't read you another passage right now on that. But it turns out that it's a pretty, pretty strong pattern. That comfort causes people to turn away from God. 
comfort and ease causes people to become first apathetic, then ungrateful and disinterested, and then simply to just walk away from God altogether. And it turns out that suffering often turns people to God, toward God. And Christianity has always had its greatest moments of growth during persecution. Now that's not just true on the collective level. It's not just true when we're talking about the the churches at large throughout world history. It's true in our lives. It's true on an individual level. It's that great irony that God, on the, He wants to bless us, and if we do well and righteous, blessings come into our life. But this bizarre irony is that those very blessings can have the unintended, unwanted, or unexpected result that we grow comfortable, then apathetic, and then cold toward God, and just drift away. It's a strange phenomenon of human nature, but it's been proven too many times for those who have examined this in the life of individuals and collectively speaking in groups. It's just a universal phenomenon that we have to grapple with. And we have to resist it. And you say, well, can I resist it? Can I resist that drift? Do I have to? Will will blessings always turn me away from God? And the answer is no. It doesn't have to be that way. That is the broad trend. And while you can't change the broad trend, you might be able to change your trajectory. You can resist it in your life. You can say, thank you for the blessings, but I'm going to do my utmost to remember that they can be stripped away in a moment. And I cannot let myself grow apathetic and then cold and drift away. Now this takes us to an important man in Scripture, one that is often talked about, and that, of course, is Job. Now, all of us are pretty familiar with the story of Job. Just in case you aren't, let's recap. Job starts out, his life is great, he's wealthy, has a fine family of adult children, he has a wife that apparently is a pleasant lady, he's pleased with his wife, he's got all kinds of material wealth and blessings. But up in the heavenly realms, when the angels decided to assemble in front of God, an unexpected guest joined them, and that was Satan. And Satan and God have a little chat, and they start talking about Job, and you know how the conversation goes. Satan says, let me have a whack at him. The only reason he gives you honor is because you bless him so much. Take away his blessings, and he'll curse you. He'll abandon you. you, He'll curse you. So God says, okay, I'll, I'll, let you, I'll let you play with him some. Go have some fun with Job. You can't kill him. 
but basically you can do anything else you want. You can do anything else with his life. You can't kill Job, but you can do anything else you want. And you know the story, right? He loses his sheep, and he loses his cattle, and he loses his donkeys, and he loses his camels, and he loses, you know, he loses all, he loses all of his livelihood. And then he loses his children in a tragedy. And then he gets sick, very sick, some sort of bizarre skin affliction that is horrible that just won't go away. So he and his wife has lost everything. They have, he had, Job has nothing left to look at and say, I can be cheerful about this. I, I, I have one bright spot that remains. He has nothing. Yet Job refused to curse God. Job refused with his lips. It says with his lips, with his mouth, Job would not say anything against God. Now what was rattling around his head is a little different story. But with his mouth, he refused to say anything against Jehovah. Even when his wife did. And his wife comes up to him and famously says, what? Curse God or die. Curse God and die. I guess she was suicidal. I'm not sure what all that phrase might mean, but she, she, she didn't hold up under the pressure, could she? All right. Then you know this, how the story goes. There's these long chapters of conversation between Job and his friends who come to visit. And they talk and they talk and they talk and they talk. And it's kind of a little dry reading. But basically they're sorting through all this. And Job, he's, he's asking a question and his friends are trying to answer it. Now, it's not phrased in a way that you and I would in modern times, but basically Job was wanting to come to some better understanding about why this has happened to me. Why? Why? And his friends have advice for him. It basically boils down to something like this. Well, Job, you know, on the surface you're a pretty good guy, but there must be some serious secret sins in your life, otherwise none of this would happen. So you need to just recognize that you are, you are a uh, there's got to be some serious sinful problems in your life. Otherwise, none of this would occur. And Job racks his brain. He says, wow, man, I just, I just can't think of anything really serious. He says, I, I, I suppose there's probably a few, a few things, you know, I, I, but I've really tried hard to live a godly and righteous life. And they say, well, yeah, I know, we all know. His friends say, on the outside, you look pretty good. But Job, there's really some dark, dark hidden secrets. Go ahead and tell us now, and let's get it out in the open, and we'll work it through, and then God will lift his curse from you. And Job just really can't think of anything. Now, I'm paraphrasing this dramatically, so excuse me if my, if my exegesis of 25 chapters is a little loose. But at the end, when we, at the end of this story, we come to an important passage. And it's worth looking at. Now, this is uh, in Job 38, and, and it might be interesting to, uh, for you to just turn there. If you have, a, have your Bible handy, I hope you do. So we get toward the end. And God finally answers Job. As Job is trying to come up with a why, and some kind of a quest, answer to the question why, 
although the word why doesn't appear, that's really what Job is trying to get an answer to. In verse 38, God finally answers him. It's not exactly the answer that Job was looking for, or maybe Job was expecting. Job was looking for some logical, reasonable, philosophically satisfying answer. And it didn't really come that way. What came was actually a little bit of a reprimand. In verse 38, God begins to answer Job's, excuse me, chapter 38, God begins to answer Job's question, why is all this happening in my life? Then the Lord answered Job. I'm in verse 1. He answered Job. Job, I've got the answer now for you. Are you ready to listen? Are you ready to listen to me now? Here's the answer. But God gives the answer in the form of a series of questions. Rhetorical questions. A long, long list of questions. He says, Job, who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Job, who are you? What makes you think you're so smart? You don't know anything. He says, compared to me, you know nothing. You know nothing. And now he begins. He says, I've got Job answer some questions. If you think you're so smart, and you think you can think your way through this, you think you can rationalize your way through this, you think you can come to some sort of satisfactory, theological, philosophical answer, I've got news for you, Job. That's not the way to go. Gird up your loins like a man. I'll demand of thee, answer thou me. Give me some answers if you're so smart, Job. If you're so smart, answer this. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who shut up the sea when it broke forth as it issued out of the womb? Verse 8. We can go on and on. Where were you when I did this? What was, do you understand this, Joe? Because all these questions. I mean, for example, I, I, I could just break in anywhere. Uh, verse 21. Knowest thou it because thou wast then born or because the numbers of thy days are great? Job, were you there? Were you alive then? And the questions go on and on and on. Job, if you're so smart, can you do this? Do you know this? Drop down to verse 33, 31. Here's one. Job. Can you bind the sweet influence of Pleiades or lose, loose the bands of Orion? Job, can you control the stars? God's saying, Job, look, you're really small. Your understanding is really small. You're going about this the wrong way. In demanding to know why these troubles have come into your life, I'm going to give you something different than a rational, reasonable explanation. I'm going to give you something different and really something better. Now, we know the end. Eventually, Job patiently listens to this, little rep, this, this long reprimand, this scolding. Okay? <laughs> and finally, at the last chapter, Job acknowledges, I guess, I guess I don't understand it, and maybe there's not really an ability for me to understand it in the greater providence of God, and I'm not in a position to be questioning you. 
Because then Job says in verse 2 of chapter 42, the last chapter, he says, I know thou canst do everything, and no thought can be withholden from thee. It turns out that God didn't answer Job with an, really an explanation. God answered Job in another way. He answered him with a person. He answered Job with a person. He answered Job with himself. He answered Job with his presence. Now, when we wonder why, this is the opportunity for us to seek that which was given to Job. God's presence. Now, all of you probably know, if you have any age on you and you've tried to comfort someone, some tragedy has happened, and you go to the side of that person, and you think to yourself, gosh, what am I going to say to make them feel better? And you just say, well, there's no, I'm not going to be able to say anything that's going to make them feel better. So what do you offer them? You offer them your presence. You offer them your presence. Now, you're just another fallen, broken human. But your presence in their grief and in their suffering gives them some small comfort. How much more the presence of God when you're struggling with trials and grief and trouble and problems. The presence of God, this person, is what we need. It's what we should long for. It's what we should seek. It's what we should desire. There's a story about a terrible accident. The Willis family, with many children, were driving along. And a, a truck driver, who didn't have his license properly obtained, accidentally dropped a large object right on the freeway right in front of their van, packed with kids. They hit the large object, the gas tank and the van exploded, killing six of their children. Parents survived, a couple other children survived, six of the children burned to death. The father, <laughs> afterward, years afterward, was able to give a testimony about how his family made it through that. He said, the depth of our pain was indescribable. Indescribable. What gives us our hope, foundation for hope, however, is what we find in Scripture. Because my children, Ben, Joe, Sam, Hank, Elizabeth, and Peter are all with Jesus Christ. We know where they are, and our strength rests in God's Word. His wife Janet says, Today I have a far greater understanding of the goodness of God than I did before the accident. Scott and Janet, the parents, they did not say that the accident strengthened their view of God's sovereignty. It's, the accident is not what strengthened their view. Indeed, the father was suicidal. His initial 
sense of loss prompted him to think about taking his own life. But their testimony was this. As the weeks passed and turned into months and the months turned into years, their faith grew as they threw themselves upon God. And they looked to God's grace to live one more day. Every day. I turned to God for strength, Janet said, because I had no strength. She went to the Bible with a hunger for God's presence. She said, I learned about Him. He made sense when nothing else made sense. If it wasn't for God, I would have lost my sanity. Most of us don't have trials quite that large, quite that heavy. But the comfort we have in affliction is about a person. I'd like to close with the words of Christ about what we have. Turn with me to John chapter number 14. John chapter number 14. John 14, please, as we wrap this up. Jesus said, beginning at verse number 16, I will pray the Father and He shall give you another Comforter, that He may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth Him not, neither knoweth Him, but ye know Him. For He dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will not leave you comfortless. Finding answers in suffering is really hard. And a lot of it isn't going to make a lot of rational sense. But you find your comfort in a person. In God Himself. In the work of the Holy Spirit. The Comforter. John 15, beginning at verse 23. Well, we'll go to 26. When the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. In John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. God and His providence and His sovereignty, He has reasons why suffering and sorrow and trial and persecution and trouble and affliction can enter our lives. But He's not going to leave us without a resource. And that resource is Himself. That resource is God's presence Himself. And the work of the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. Draw near unto Him, and He will comfort you and bless you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. God bless you.